For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to Luke chapter 22. In Luke 22, we're going to begin reading at verse 39, and we will read through verse 46. So Luke chapter 22, and beginning at verse 39, this is the account of what occurs in the Garden of Gethsemane as Dr. Luke records it. We read this, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. That's how far we read from God's word. Brothers and sisters, if you want to understand Good Friday and what happens on the cross, you need to understand what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the dark shadows of an olive garden. The time is about midnight on Thursday evening, the day before Good Friday. And Jesus has left behind the Last Supper and the celebration of the Passover. Jesus leaving the place where the Passover celebration leads leads his disciples and they are singing a hymn as they go on the way. And they walk outside of the holy city, and they cross the valley, and there they come to this olive tree garden, and there Jesus, at the opening of it, leaves behind eight of his disciples, and then selects three more, his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, who he wants to be close to him at this difficult time, and they go further on into the garden, And then Jesus even leaves the three behind and goes a little further yet, but not so far that they can't hear him. Now, why does Jesus go to the Garden of Gethsemane? Now, it's true that the first Adam sinned in a garden, so it's interesting that the second Adam is in a garden, but I don't think it has anything to do with that. It has to do with the fact that Jesus does not want to hide from Judas Iscariot. This is where Judas Iscariot knows that Jesus often goes 
And so Judas is going to be able to lead the people who come to arrest Jesus to this garden. But among the gnarled, and probably even in those days, ancient olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's some very strange and remarkable happenings. Listen to Jesus' tormented words. And then this morning we want to look in Jesus' face and see what his face is looking like. And then the fact that there are these great drops like blood falling from his face. There's very deep emotion occurring in this garden. Dr. Luke, as he wrote about this and what occurred here, must have been deeply moved as he wrote about what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his account, he refers to it simply as the Mount of Olives, since the Garden of Gethsemane is, in fact, at the bottom of the slope of the Mount of Olives. It's interesting that Dr. Luke doesn't include things that are in the other gospel accounts. You can turn to Matthew and Mark, and you can find other things about what happens here. For example, Matthew and Mark will tell you that Jesus leaves behind eight of the disciples at the entrance to the Garden of Gethsemane. Elsewhere, we're told, too, that he selects Peter, James, and John and has them come further on with him. It's also in the other gospel accounts that we learn that Jesus prays three times. In the Bible, you know, when something occurs three times, that's quite significant. Like, for example, when the seraphim in heaven cry out about the glory and the holiness of the triune God, they say, holy, 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 and that triple repetition is clearly emphatic. Jesus has a prayer that he brings to the Father three times to show his great earnestness and how vital this petition is. Also, the other gospel accounts tell us about the fact that when Jesus comes back to the disciples, he keeps finding them asleep. They're unable to stay awake to support Jesus at this time. Now, Luke's gospel account is unique in two respects. There are two things we learn about the Garden of Gethsemane only from him. The first thing is that Dr. Luke, who is the person who recorded the visit of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary and to Zacharias, is the only gospel writer who tells us that an angel came from heaven and encouraged Jesus at this moment of agony. So that is striking. The other thing that is striking is that Dr. Luke, is it because he's a medical doctor? Points us to the fact that from Jesus' face, there are these great sweaty drops as of blood that are falling to the ground. He's the only gospel writer who informs us about that unique situation. So Dr. Luke rivets our attention on Jesus and the agony he is experiencing and the need that he has for an angelic visitor. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. First of all, we'll look at the meaning of that. And then secondly, the reason for his agony in the garden. And then finally, the significance of it. 
As Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane, now a great change comes over the Messiah. Prior to this, our great high priest has been speaking to the Father in what we call the high priestly prayer. And in the high priestly prayer, he had been celebrating certain things. For example, Jesus has also been celebrating other things with great joy. He was able to keep the last Passover with his disciples. He told them that he had looked forward to doing that with them. And so Jesus had enjoyed that last supper. Also, with great joy, he had been communing with the Father and celebrating his oneness with the Father. In John 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus is recorded as praying, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. So there he has been celebrating the marvelous oneness he enjoys with the Father. He has also been looking ahead to the future with expectation and joy. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus has been enjoying also just the peace of serenity as as one who is holy, the calm of fellowship with God. He has just been able to lead the disciples in singing a psalm or two as they walked from the place where they had the Passover to the Garden of Gethsemane. But now Jesus no longer sings. There's a change. And it's very interesting, you know, when you and I, let's say that we're around other people and suddenly we feel sad, often we try to put on a happy face. Jesus doesn't do that. Why doesn't Jesus do that? Because he is no hypocrite. Jesus is not a hypocrite. What you see is the truth. And now Jesus is no longer joyful, but instead overcome with grief. And he does not conceal that, and he would not have concealed that if he would have felt that somehow pressure, societal pressure, meant he should. So he doesn't have a false face. And he invites especially three of the disciples to come along further into the garden to observe his grief. This is a grief observed. Now, a few days before this, four days before this, the Apostle John tells us that Jesus said this, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was was for this reason I came to this hour. So four days before, Jesus is beginning to be troubled about what is coming, but now he endures a grief that was unknown any time earlier on during his ministry. Jesus now becomes very sorrowful and troubled. This is what Matthew records in the parallel account. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He's sorrowful, deeply sad. Think of times in your life when you were very down. Grief-stricken, 
Jesus' intensely sorrowful. He has the kind of grief that you can see on a person's face. He's troubled. The word troubled means that he has this great weight on him. There's this heaviness on him. This burden is upon him because what is happening, well, the guilt of all of God's people is being placed upon him. Read the book of Leviticus or Numbers, and you see again and again God says, when you do an animal sacrifice, you're to lay your hands on the head of the animal. A picture of the transfer of guilt. And now the guilt of God's people is being placed upon his shoulders. And Christ is feeling the weight of this burden and the punishment he must suffer. And so he is troubled and weighed down. The King James also, in if you look in Mark 14, verse 33, says that our great high priest is also sore amazed. The ESV says that he was deeply distressed. Mark 14, verse 33 says he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He's sore amazed. It's like there's a horrified amazement and astonishment as he begins to perceive the suffering that lays before him, lies before him, the fact that he is going to hang on the accursed tree and pay for our sins. And so he is staggered. It's like he's looking down into the abyss of hell and realizing the horrific punishments that will fall upon him because he is being made sin for us. So he is staggered. And sore amazed. Sometimes we try to hide from other people when we're going through hard times. We want, we somehow think that if we are open with people about our troubles, then they will somehow look down upon us. Christ has no concerns about that. He is perfectly humble. And so he doesn't conceal his agony. In Matthew 26, verse 38, we find that Jesus tells Peter, James, and John, about his agony. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He says, my soul is overwhelmed. It's surrounded. It's like he's surrounded by an ocean of sorrows. And it's striking that he says that he is so overwhelmed and so swallowed up by these sorrows that he says it's, it's almost like it is killing me. It's like I'm almost dying. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Jesus doesn't die in the garden, but he is talking as if he is suffering so much already that's as if he is suffering the pain of death. Jesus' agony is evident from a number of things. One, he feels the need for companionship and encouragement. Isn't it striking that it's at this time he wants 
Peter, James, and John, his closest friends, he wants them nearby. That also reminds us of the true humanity of Christ. He wants his closest friends by him. He wants their support. And so he takes them into the garden and says, stay here and keep watch. He wants them to stay awake, to keep watch. And then he's hurt too when he comes and he finds that the disciples keep falling asleep on him. We're told then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. We're told that they sleep for sorrow. They don't understand what's going on, but they are down as well. And then there's Peter who has just recently very proudly said things like, well, if even everybody else you know, denies you, I will not. Well, there's Peter who needs to be praying because very soon he is going to fall into the temptation to deny his master that he falls asleep to so that Jesus comes and says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Jesus' profound grief and agony is evident in the fact, too, that Jesus actually throws himself to the ground. He collapses. Have you ever been so worked up and so sad about something that you just collapse? Think about stories about, for example, a loved one has died in the military, and so someone from the military, perhaps a chaplain, shows up and needs to inform the person that their loved one has been killed in the line of duty, and the person just collapses. That's what Jesus does. He collapses. Mark records, going a little further, he fell to the ground. Matthew says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. So look at the Messiah. He has collapsed. He's on the ground. His face is on the ground. He is collapsing. And he's crying out to his heavenly Father. So he throws himself to the ground. The intensity of Jesus' agony is evident from the fact, too, that God sends and needs to send an angel to encourage him. We're told an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. This is one of those rare angelic visits in the Bible, and yet this doesn't get a lot of press, does it? We remember how the angel visits the Virgin Mary, Zacharias, we remember how the angels are present at the empty tomb, but here too is an angel present. Yes, it's true, an angel came and encouraged Jesus after he was tempted by the devil. But here in the garden, notice such is the agony and the sorrow of the man of sorrows that God the Father sends an angel on wings from heaven to come and encourage him and to strengthen him in this difficult hour. And so even though the disciples maybe are fast asleep and are not there to encourage him, a glorious, holy angel appears to encourage him. We're told that the angel strengthens him. Notice According to his humanity, our Savior has also a weakened human nature like we have, and he needs strength. Jesus' agony is also evident from his sobs and his tears. When you think about Jesus, do you ever think about someone who could cry hard? 
Now, if you grow up in a home with uh, lots of little girls, you'll know that, hey, there can be lots of crying, even little boys. It's amazing how little boys were three, four, and five, and six, and seven, aren't always so rational at that point, aren't they? Cry about all kinds of different things. But maybe you don't realize that also your Savior sobbed and cried. The writer to the Hebrews emphasizes that. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, he talks about how during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Notice that it talks about loud cries, sobbing, tears, his voice breaking. Jesus didn't only cry when he stood at the grave of Lazarus, where we have the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He also cried in the garden. Following the angelic visit, we are told that Jesus prays even more earnestly. Now that's striking to me because Jesus already is very earnest in his prayer, very sincere, very serious. This is a grave moment. And then we're told this, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. Isn't that striking? Even more fervently, even more intensely, he prays to the Father. We're told that he was in anguish. The word anguish is the word agony. And the idea is that when you are in a wrestling competition, for example, as you're struggling with your opponent, you're throwing all of your effort into it, and there's pain that is involved and agony and hurt as you struggle. It's like Jesus is struggling here too. He's struggling with the fact that as a human, he is recoiling from what lies ahead. He's also struggling with Satan. And he's in agony. And so he prays even more earnestly. Then Dr. Luke records what is one of the most profound things about this whole passage. Dr. Luke not only tells us about the angelic visit, but he also talks about what Jesus' face is looking like and what's happening. He says that running down Jesus' face are, are great drops as of blood. We're told... And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He is sweating. Have you ever been so scared that you sweat? Sometimes people talk about when they get a chance, for example, to be a public speaker. What happens when they get in front of people? They get scared and they sweat. Jesus now is in fear according to his humanity. He is in fear of the dreadful punishment to come. It's like he's standing on the brink of the pit of hell, and it's like he feels the fire, the heat from the lake of fire, and he is in a sweat. But Dr. Luke says is that the, the, these, the sweat that was dropping from his face was like drops of blood. And the question is, what's being described there? Some people think that due to stress, and this happens with ordinary people like you and me, if people get in a situation where there's 
great stress. They can have some of their, their small blood veins that burst and burst by their sweat glands. And if that's the case, what's going on here is that some of Jesus' small, tiny blood veins have burst, and so blood is getting mixed in with his sweat and his tears. He's crying too. And so then Dr. Luke is describing a situation where there's all this sweat, there are these tears that are reddish dropping from his face. Others think that when it says his sweat was like drops of blood, it just means that he has such large drops of blood, of, of sweat falling and tears that it kind of looks like it would be like drops of blood, even though it wasn't bloody. Either way, Dr. Luke is describing our master in a moment of great agony. The agony in his soul is manifesting itself in his sweating, in his face, in his sorrow. Our sins must be an awful thing. If our sins and the punishment they deserve cause our great high priest to be in agony like this when he only has a foretaste yet of what is to come. What must be the terror of the punishment of the wicked in hell today? Sin, our sin, is far more awful and grave than we realize. Remember, it was just our first father just eating a piece of forbidden fruit that made him worthy of the punishment of a holy and just God in hell. How great are our sins. That's why we need to look to the man of sorrows and we need to believe who he is and believe what he is accomplishing. Why is Jesus suffering such agony in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, there are at least three reasons we can say. The first reason why Jesus is suffering this agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, is that he is the donkey rider. He is the donkey rider. The very, well, a few days before, four days before, he entered into the holy city in great triumph. Contrary to how Jesus had acted, Jesus suddenly instigates a parade. He sends someone to fetch a donkey, a colt of a donkey, with his mother, and then he rides it into the city. He instigates this big public event so that all of Jerusalem is in an uproar. The great crowds are coming and bringing the palm leaves down. Prior to that, Jesus would do massive miracles of healing and say, shh, be quiet. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell people who I am. But now the Messiah acts differently because his hour is coming. Now, it's true that the Jewish crowds get everything messed up and monkeyed up in their eyes. It's like they're seeing the Messiah riding on a war horse. They think that perhaps soon the Messiah will provide bread for armies and that Pontius Pilate, the Romans, will be kicked out of the holy city and that the Messiah, as a worldly, domineering Lord, is going to establish some type of 
earthly Jewish kingdom, some type of petty, you know, fiefdom, a kingdom that runs from the, from the Nile River in Egypt, maybe to the Euphrates River. So they're thinking in terms of a Jewish earthly kingdom. Jesus Iscariot is the one who probably is thinking, well, great, pretty soon silver is going to be kicked around in the streets of Jerusalem like in the days of King Solomon again. And his disciples are fighting about who will be the greatest when he is the king, who can be at his right hand. But it's all caricature. The reason why Jesus suffers these agonies in Gethsemane is because he is the donkey rider. He doesn't come into Jerusalem like the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, it is true that Christ will come again in the clouds of heaven. And when we see him on the clouds of heaven, yes, he will come like a lion. But now he comes like a lamb. He comes riding a lowly donkey with his feet dragging on the ground, riding a little colt. Because you see, he comes to serve. He comes to die. He comes as the Passover lamb. He comes lowly and riding on a donkey. And that is just the beginning of his descending even lower and giving himself to the accursed death on the tree of the cross. That's why Jesus is in agony, because he is the donkey rider who comes to serve and die. The second reason why Jesus has this profound agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, because he realizes that God the Father has ordained that he would drink of the divine wrath. In the Old Testament already, the idea of a cup of wrath was found. Now, many people in the West know that For example, a cup has become famous for a method of dying and death because Socrates famously was told by the Athenians, you're corrupting the young and therefore you need to either commit suicide and drink some poisoned hemlock from a cup or you need to leave Athens. And famously Socrates said, no, I don't want to leave Athens. It's the center of my world. Instead, he took the cup and drank the hemlock and died in the presence of his disciples. But the imagery goes back to the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 75, verse 8, we read, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah 51, verse 22, describes the cup as that cup, the goblet of my wrath. So there's a cup, and it is very much in Jesus' mind. That's why three times he is going to talk to God the Father about this cup. That's why Jesus isn't like the martyrs, for example. There have been many martyrs, you know, in the history of the Christian faith. They're facing death, and guess what? In the face of death, they don't even have a lot of agony. In the face of death, they're even triumphant. Think of people like even Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is being executed by the Nazis because of his attempt on the life of the Fuhrer. 
And as Bonhoeffer is about to die, he says, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. Notice, notice the serenity with which he faced death. And throughout history, they, the astonishing thing is that again and again we find martyrs, Christians facing death, and they have this great confidence and even joy. So then, then in the face of that, why is the Messiah like this? Well, the reason why the Messiah is so much in agony in the face of his death, isn't that he's not being just a mere martyr. He's not just being a witness to the, to the Savior. No, he needs to drink a cup of wrath. His sufferings are unique, terrible. How do you deal with like little headaches? How do you deal with just like a little pain in your leg or your eye? We don't deal very well with pain, do we? Christ so suffered unique pain, the horror of hellish agonies. During the three hours of darkness on the cross where the sun was shut off from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, Jesus suffered the horrors of the outer darkness. He suffered being forsaken by God. And that's why in the garden, it's very interesting, Jesus goes a little ways away from the disciples, but not so far that they can't hear. How is Dr. Luke able to record what happened here? How is Matthew able to write about it? How can John Mark write about it? Well, because Peter, James, and John were there. They were in hearing distance. And so they hear what Jesus is saying, and it has to do with this cup. First of all, Jesus says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Notice the Son is saying, if there's any other possible way for the great work of redemption to occur, if there's any way to save my people other than drinking of this cup, if so, then may this cup be taken away from me. But already the very first time he prayed, he said, yet not as I will, but as you will. So notice already now there's this willingness this awareness that this is the plan of God and that since God is just and righteous in all of his ways, the only way for you and I, guilty sinners, to be reconciled to God is through this way, the way of the cross. And then a second time, Peter, James, and John heard Jesus say, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And you can hear there that he is sensing that this is the Father's will and this is what is necessary. So he says, may your will be done. And then a third time we're told, so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Notice the intensity of all this. And then he stops praying because he knows it is the will of God that he must drink of this cup because he is the glorious sin bearer. He is the scapegoat. So he must take this 
And isn't it sunny that he must take this cup from his father's hand? But the Bible everywhere teaches that God the Father is going to punish the incarnate Son. That's why it had been predicted, yet it pleased the Lord, the Lord Jehovah, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. And so in the garden, Jesus is committed that, yes, he is going to take that cup. And it's like he can already taste that cup. And that's why later on the next day, as they are going to nail him on the cross, they offer him some doped wine. And he says, no, he doesn't want any of that devilish wine because he wants his mind to be clear. He wants to be lucid so that he can drink the cup of divine wrath and he can pay for the sins of his people. The third reason why Jesus must suffer like this in the Garden of Gethsemane is because he already now, already now he's paying for our sins. Did you know that? Jesus didn't just pay for our sins while he hung on the accursed tree. He also paid for our sins his whole life long. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism famously talks about that. It says, especially on the cross, but also earlier has delivered me from the terror, the anguish, and torment of hell. So he suffered earlier too. And now, at this moment, as Jesus faces the horrors of the cross, already now he is paying for our sins. Now what's the significance of Jesus' agony on, in the Garden of Gethsemane? I think we learn three great realities. The first great reality that we learn is that Jesus is truly man. He is truly man, and therefore he can also be a sympathetic high priest for us. Jesus was a real man, and he shrinks from death and hell just as we real human beings do too. I mean, we might be tempted to say, wait a minute, Christ, you're the Son of God. You are Emmanuel. You're God with us. You're a deity. So we might want to say, toughen up, deity. But no, Christ is also truly man. And as a man, he has a true human, very human desire to avoid the great suffering that is coming. We also see that Jesus, as a true human, has a true human will. That is why Jesus is not my will, what I could wish for, but thy will be done. Notice how he is affirming that the Godhead has a will and that as a human, he also has a will. The church fought about that in the early centuries. In fact, there were heretics called the Monothelites. And the Monothelites believed that Christ had only one will. The word one, mono, or alone, and the word fellow is the word for will. So they said, well, Christ only has one will. And then the question was, well, what is that one will then? And they said, well, it's the one will that God possesses, the will of the eternal God. Well, finally, at the Third Council of Constantinople in 681, the church 
had to clearly condemn that and said, no, that's, that's a heresy. Christ has two wills. Yes, as God, he possesses a single divine will, but also as a man, he has a true human will, the will of the man Christ. And notice how Christ needs to make sure that his human will submits to the will of the triune God who has planned this glorious work of redemption. And, you know, as you go through difficult times in your life, at times when you're sad, maybe this coming week, there are things that will lead you to cry or you'll feel down about. Remember, you have in Christ a sympathetic high priest. According to his humanity, he has sobbed and wept. And he has been tempted too. In fact, temptation is a whole issue in this whole context. That's why Jesus says to the disciples, very importantly, he says, make sure that you pray lest you enter into temptation. He says, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. In our text, in verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So notice temptation is the big thing. The, the disciples are in danger of being enticed to do sinful things. For fear of men, Peter is going to be tempted to say, I don't even know who this Jesus of Nazareth is. He'll curse and he'll swear and he'll say that. And so when we face temptations, so let's remember that we have a master who has suffered far more powerful temptation than we ever have, and he said no to them all. So he knows what it's like to be tempted and he can relate to us in the midst of trials. James Montgomery wrote, Go to dark Gethsemane, ye that feel the tempter's power, your Redeemer's conflict see, watch with him one bitter hour. Jesus makes the remark about the disciples, that's true for us too. The spirit is willing, but the body or the flesh is weak. But in dependence upon Christ and his spirit, guess what we can do too? We can say no to temptation. We can also, by the grace of Christ's spirit, we can put God's will first. Christ is a model for us too, so that this coming week, we can say not my will, not what I might want, but what you will, O God. May that be what I do too. So the first Great reality, we learn that Jesus is truly man, and therefore he can be a great high priest for us. He can intercede for us this week, relating to us. Secondly, the great reality we learn is the matchless love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He's on the very edge of drinking this cup. He is on the edge of suffering for our sins. Look at his beauty and excellency and glory as our bridegroom. This is a husband who loves his wife. This is the bridegroom who loves his bride. This is the bridegroom who will pay for his bride, who will take her pain, suffer her pain in her place and in her stead. Look at the love of Christ for you, beloved. This is your Savior. This is your beloved one. He is suffering this agony in the garden because guess what he wants for you? That when you die, you don't face a personal judgment. There is no wrath. Instead, there is welcome into the presence 
of the thrice holy God and there is an everlasting smile of joy put on your face. Look at the matchless love of your master. He suffered this pain, the pain, the horrors of hell because of this matchless, marvelous love. He has loved you and given himself for you. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that's the model for us husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And here is our bridegroom ready to do that. The last thing, the last great reality is this. Beloved saint, yes, it's true that you and I are such great sinners yet. Our moral condition is that we have not attained perfection. I mean, um, there are false teachers in the past who have taught that in this life, Christians can you know, attain a sinless, sinless lifestyle like Chuck Finney or like John Wesley. They claim that you could reach that point in your life where you never sinned anymore. No, that, that is folly. Still, we fight against our old man of sin every single day. But here's this. When you look at Christ, you see the man of sorrows in the Garden of Gethsemane and see how he is ready to take that cup and drink it for you. You can know that he is your justification. Christ, the very next day, hung on the accursed tree and cried out, remember, that great cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what was he doing? He was paying for our sins. He lives also a righteous, perfect life in our place and on our behalf. And the astounding wonder is that through faith in Jesus Christ, that perfect righteousness and innocence of Christ is now imputed to your account. And so when God the Father looks at you, yes, it's true that, that you are a, a sinner, but you're also a saint, but you also are just. Absolutely innocent, washed, cleansed in the blood. So be assured that your sins have been forgiven, that you've been washed. The Hutterberg Catechism had a very great pastoral concern when it talked about those three hours of darkness. It says, Why does the creed add he descended into hell? To, me, to assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. And remember, the Heidelberg Catechism was written in German. And Casper Livianus and his friend who wrote it, guess what word they picked where we have translated personal crisis and temptation. Well, it's the word, the German word, anfektung. Well, if you know anything about the Lutheran Reformation, you know that was a word that Luther used. Because Luther would struggle with times when he would think, can God really have forgiven me my sins? And so that's the word they picked here. Notice in times when we wonder, could God possibly forgive me? Could God possibly love me given, given how sinful I still am? Notice the creed says, well, then you need to remember what Christ suffered on the accursed tree. Beloved saints, listen to the 
the cries of Christ in the garden. Listen to his willingness to drink the cup, and then you know Christ, he did take the cup, and he drank it to the very bottom, and he paid for all of your sins, so you're cleansed, you're washed, you're liberated, you're justified. God doesn't hold your sins against you. In fact, when God looks at you, he sees you in Christ having kept his law perfectly. So be assured of the forgiveness of your sins. Cling by faith to your Savior. Be wholly assured you've done that. Next day, Jesus would hang on the cross. And after the agonies of the hours of darkness, when he suffered the great, great burden of God's wrath against our sins, and we can't even comprehend what that was all like, because think about it, all of our of the punishments we deserve forever and ever and ever and ever have been compressed into, as it were, three hours. And that's why the Catechism says the divine nature needs to uphold Jesus' human nature as he suffers these terrible agonies, as he empties the cup. But then afterwards, what happens after the three hours of darkness? The sun comes out again. Jesus, yes, in the aftermath, he says, I thirst. But then he can also say once again, Father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he can die victorious. So Christ has died for us. He has redeemed us. So we can have a deep sense that yes, we have been reconciled to God through him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so glad that Jesus cried out to tell us die to let us all know that it was finished, that the great work of redemption had been completed, that he had emptied the cup and has delivered us from the wrath that will fall upon a rebellious world and upon the Antichrist and upon the devil and all of his devils. We are astounded because we know very well that our salvation is a pure, pure gift of free, free grace. And we thank you so much, O oh God, for sending Jesus into this world. And we are so glad, too, that his sufferings are long over some 1,900 years ago. And now he has entered into his glory, where he is reigning and ruling, and with great joy gathering his elect sheep out of all the nations of the world until he returns and makes things new again. In that hope we live, and in that hope we die. Hear our prayer now, in Jesus' name, amen.